0: Hi, I'm Krista Kennedy.
1: And I'm Diane Weiner. And you are listening to ADA Live.
2: Yo.
3: Hi, let's roll.
2: Hi, everybody, and welcome. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to ADA Live. I'm Barry Whaley, Director of the Southeast ADA Center. As a reminder, listening audience, if you have questions about the ADA, you can use our online form at adalive.org. From robots making food deliveries, drones aiding in search and rescue missions, and cars that drive themselves, automation and technology are changing the way we live, kind of like the Jetsons. With this change comes numerous challenges and risks must be considered because according to experts in the field, this automation shifts responsibility from humans and lets intelligent machines take control. With an eye to the future, in May of 2019, Syracuse University announced the Autonomous Systems Policy Institute with the goal of keeping technology from outpacing policy. To discuss the work of the Autonomous Systems Policy Institute as well as issues and impacts for people with disabilities, we are so happy today to welcome as our guest Dr. Krista Kennedy, She's an Associate Professor of Writing Studies, Rhetoric and Composition at Syracuse University. And our guest host today, uh, our colleague, Dr. Diane Weiner, Research Professor and Associate Director of Interdisciplinary Programs and Outreach at the Burton Blatt Institute. So ladies, I wanna welcome you and Diane, I'll turn it over to you.
1: Thank you so much, Barry, and welcome to you, Krista. We're so glad that you're able to join us today It's very exciting that Syracuse University has an institute devoted to looking at the impacts of these systems. Could you please tell us a bit about the Autonomous Systems Policy Institute?
0: Thank you. I would be happy to. Um, The institute is an interdisciplinary institute that facilitates research across uh, all of our colleges and faculty who are working on various aspects of autonomous systems, as well as uh, developing courses that examine autonomous systems and the ethics of automation from various aspects. And we also develop a number of community partnerships. And all of this has been labs since its inception by Jamie Winders, who has just been our fearless director. It has been a really exciting thing to be a part of because it's often the case that when you're working on robotics or AI or on ethical aspects of AI, that you talk to people who are in your own discipline you talk to the people who are like you right and this has brought all of us together in a way so that rhetoricians like me and philosophers who are in the college of arts and sciences are talking to people who specialize in public policy and social science from our Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, and also to people who are legal scholars over in the college and law, and our folks who work in industry development and innovation incubation from the iSchool, and also from Whitman School of Management. And then all of us are also talking to the people who work with hands-on design applications, from the Visual and Performing Arts College, and also from architecture and our scholars who work on applied research in the colleges of engineering and computer science, and then of course our health science and disability specialist over in Falk College and the School of Education. It's amazing to be part of these radically interdisciplinary initiatives. And we're also working on expanding our faculty in this area. This year, the Institute is leading a cluster hire initiative that will ultimately involve 16 faculty lines that are spread across Maxwell High School the law school, engineering, and as well as some other units.
1: That's wonderful. And it it goes right to the question I was going to ask next. Uh, Thank you so much. So since you're in the College of Arts and Sciences in specific, although you did comment on this uh, in some respects just now, can you say a little bit more for our listeners and people accessing the program otherwise, how is the Autonomous Systems Policy Institute collaborating specifically with some of the other colleges at Syracuse University?
0: Thank you so much. Sure. Sure. The wonderful thing about this is we're collaborating not just across our own colleges, but also with other institutions and with state agencies and also with industry partners. So one example of that is a team of um, the Institute's faculty are part of a large grant submission on urban air mobility, and that's been something that we've done in partnership with RPI over in Rochester, who's leading that initiative. Uh, We ourselves have led the submission of an NSF AI Research Institute proposal that involved about 40 of our faculty across all of the colleges I just mentioned, and that is something we've done in partnership with Cornell University and the Minority STEM Research and Development Consortium. Um, Those are both partner institutes on that proposal. We also have a team of our faculty that are conducting a statewide survey of drone use and knowledge amongst a wide variety of city and county agencies in New York State and a team of SU faculty that submitted a funding proposal on the relationship between rural public health and emerging technologies. And we also act as a general liaison between the university and industries that are working in the areas of AI and autonomous systems.
1: It's fantastic, Krista. And I wanted to ask you um, if you can help us understand a little bit more when we mean, uh, you know, to think about language very precisely and, and specifically the term autonomous systems, and then the term autonomous technology, are they the same thing? Can you untangle that a little bit for us? What what do we mean when we use these terms and when we say these
0: terms in other ways? Thank you. I'll do my best. I mean, in all honesty, if you ask 10 different automation researchers that question, you're going to get 10 different answers. And on one level, all autonomous technologies are part of autonomous systems because algorithms don't just operate by themselves. You know, you need the algorithms, which is usually working in concert with other algorithms. Um, You need the hardware and systems that networks that that's what we're actually running on and you need all the material components of whatever system that you're talking about so i mean an example of that would be the smart hearing aid that i wear i've been deaf since the age of two so i've worn these for 40 years not always smart obviously um, which is on one hand you know when i talk about it i talk about it as a piece of technology it's my little hearing aid it goes in my ear and that's that But within that hearing aid are five different algorithms that are running and interacting at the speed of milliseconds in order to do things like isolate between consonants and filter out background noise and a number of other things. And my hearing aid is always linked to my iPhone, which is actually how it's controlled. And it's also always in uh, contact with GPS satellites. It's when it's not pandemic times, and I'm actually out roaming around in the world. It's also hopping from cell tower to cell tower in order to stay in contact with um, the various entities that it needs to remain in contact with for GPS positioning and for data use and for a number of other things. And, you know, it's also always in contact with servers of a manufacturer. So, It's a really complex system, and at the same time, we just at a practical level need to be able to talk about a technology as a technology when I'm talking about smart hearing aids and um, the engineers are talking about the most recent drone they've been developing, you know? So we do talk about these things just as as the tech I'm working on, but as with all these things, it ends up being more complicated than the language actually suggests. (laughs)
1: I love the way you answered that in and, and so many ways, and I, I wish we had many hours to talk about all the different nuances <laughs> and ethics, and the fact that I can now imagine your hearing aid is having a cape as it flies through the air uh, in the cell tower, exchanges that it's having, and um, I know you know that I'm a fan of superheroes, so I'm not idealizing it, but I also think it has powers that really emphasize the concept of autonomy. Because the machine has a kind of autonomy, but obviously you have the most autonomy and that's how it needs to be. And that goes right to the next question, which is your research, I know, looks at the ways in which people work with these technologies and the implications of policies and laws that guide this interaction between the human and the machine. Can you tell us a bit more about this research and if you want to say some things about that as it relates to some of the ethical questions you were uh, pointing to in your comments just now that would be terrific but well, that's up to you just really curious and just fantastic conversation thank you so much
0: oh absolutely i'm enjoying this conversation a lot well i'm a rhetorician by trade and rhetoricians study persuasion in a wide variety of contexts whether that's you know political argument public memory and the way that we persuade ourselves of things that happened in the past, um, the ways we persuade ourselves about things like racial dynamics in America. Um, I look at persuasive technologies, and by that, I mean that I'm interested in the ways uh, that we create persuasive designs for technology, the ways that we persuade each other to use or not use technologies, um, the ways that we position technologies and things like patient education materials also Um, and that's something that I'm I'm fascinated by just by dint of the research I do but also as a multiply disabled researcher something I have a lot of personal investments in so in my case for the last several years I've been writing about the ways the company persuade folks to wear medical wearables and also the extent to which data is harvested and repurposed. Because when you're wearing a medical wearable, and I would call my smart hearing aid a medical wearable um, because of any number of reasons, including the fact that I just, I need it to go about my day. Um, And also newer models like the one I'm wearing do provide biometric tracking and any number of other things that we actually associate with more traditional medical wearables. So, I get up in the morning, my feet hit the ground, I put in my hearing aid at 5 a.m., and I don't take it out until I go to bed at night. And every moment that I'm awake, I'm generating data, both about the hearing environments that I'm in, where I am based on GPS positioning, um, the types of voices I'm listening to, the way the machine is toggling and processing information. So, this applies to any number of medical wearables, whether that's an insulin pump, a pacemaker or even things like your Fitbit that people opt into. I'm interested in where that data goes, what we do and don't tell people about, A, that their data is being harvested, where it's being stored, how it's being resold, and the differences between the ways that we approach this in the U.S. and also in the EU, which has a very different set of privacy laws. So that's a broad look at what we've been up to.
1: I can't wait to talk more about this with you uh, as we continue. Thank you so, so much. I just want to add that ADA Live, listening audience, if you have questions about this topic or any other ADA Live topic, you can submit your questions online at www.adalive.org or call the Southeast ADA Center at one 404 541 Nine zero zero one. That number again is 1404 541 9001. And the website again is www.adalive.org. Let's pause for a word about our featured organization, Autonomous Systems Policy Institute at Syracuse University.
3: The Autonomous Systems Policy Institute at Syracuse University is a campus-wide institute dedicated to the interdisciplinary scholarship and teaching on the design, governance, and wider implications of autonomous systems and to critically engage and shape the policy and ethical frameworks that guide the use and development of autonomous systems. The Institute's work focuses on autonomous systems from driverless cars to unmanned aerial vehicles to maritime systems. This broad approach, plus the Institute's interdisciplinary research, allows it to offer a synthesizing critical perspective on how autonomous systems impact the world around us and what kinds of policies, norms, and practices can best shape their ethical and fair use. The Institute brings academic insight, community need, and industry development into conversation and joint action. It involves faculty from all over Syracuse University schools and colleges and creates research opportunities for graduate and undergraduate students across campus. The Institute also hosts speaker series, public events, and student and faculty workshops. For more information about the Autonomous System Policy Institute, visit their website at www.maxwell.syr edu forward slash autonomous hyphen policy.
1: Thanks so much. Welcome back, everyone. Before the break, we were discussing the ways people work with technologies and the implications of policies and laws that guide this interaction between human and machine. I'm hoping you can tell us a bit more about your research in this regard, Krista, but I have a kind of um, related topical question. Um, (laughs) I know you've studied the concept of human-machine collaboration, and in particular, looking at smart hearing aids, which you were talking about Mm -hmm. earlier, and which I now cannot not imagine without a cape, so I won't keep saying it, but I just think it might become a character in my life. Um, Can you tell us what is human-machine collaboration And what you found about that during your research.
0: Absolutely. I mean, human-machine collaboration is a term that sounds really sci-fi, like it's from the future. And that it demands, you know, really a true type of artificial intelligence before one can really collaborate with a machine, right? And yet, it is something that we do all the time um, with technologies that aren't smart at all. I mean, think about the writing instruments that you use in your work pen, keyboard, phone, whatever it is that you use. Each one of these things shapes the ways that you communicate and the ways that you write, Um, both the speed that you write at, what that actual writing looks like. You may have a different voice depending on what technology you're using. You may use emojis because that's one of the affordances of the platform. And that's the sort of situation where you're shaping the tech, but the tech is also shaping you. And this happens in so many other aspects of our lives. I mean, algorithms recommend the news that you read, what movies you watch, and those shape your worldviews in a number of ways. Um, And we collaborate with tech in all kinds of ways. And in the case of something like a smart hearing aid, it's a really, really intimate collaboration because hearing aids aren't just plug and play, really. Um, You have to learn to work with them. Even if it's not a smart hearing aid, you need to know how to angle your head, um, how to where to sit in a room. If you are someone who is invested in the visibility or invisibility of that hearing aid, then you have a whole lot of other rhetorical skills to learn as you learn to wear them. Um, But in the case of any hearing aid, you are exercising auditory centers of your brain. You're keeping them active. You're developing linguistic centers. And this is part of the reason that parents are, who are, invested in working toward mainstreaming children who have been deafened very early. Um, And this is what happened in my case. I became deaf at the age of two. And so I had some language acquisition, but I wasn't by any means all the way through that process. And so for my parents and my doctors, it was very important that I be fitted with a hearing aid immediately so that that process of linguistic acquisition could continue. And there's a similar argument that gets made for late- deafened individuals, people who become deafer later in life. Um, there's a tremendous amount of research on the, on the way is that the social isolation it comes with being able to um, not being able to communicate verbally when you're in a consistent social circle that only communicates verbally. The social isolation that results from that also tends to drive Alzheimer's and the development of various forms of dementia. So there is a strong argument that's being pushed in the past few years for definitely being fitted with a hearing aid in order to stave off mild decline. So working with technology in that particular way means that you're working with your brain. You're collaborating with that technology to Keep things working or develop brain centers in a very specific way. Um, that's a really intimate collaboration. That's something that starts to get to the core of who you are and how you move around in the world. But I think it's just something that's worth exploring, um, thinking about the ways that human-machine collaboration works specifically especially in disability context, but also for anyone, because there are hardly any of us now that don't work closely with some form of technology throughout the day.
1: Thank you so much. And along those lines, I was thinking about, you know, the role of disabled people, people with disabilities, you know, obviously some folks prefer, you know, what's called identity first language, you know, disabled people, and some people prefer Person first language, people with disabilities, person with a disability or disabilities. So, how are folks with disabilities um, included and being included in a, in a purposeful way in the development of these autonomous systems? And so, I guess, in a related regard, you, you gave a really beautiful uh, uh, you know, description just now of the multiple ways that someone might uh, come into the world disabled or acquire a disability. You know, how deaf, disabled, um, neurodivergent, um, chronically ill, sick folks, folks with uh, psychiatric and emotional variants, all different kinds of folks uh, and our different ways of living in the world and moving in the world and being in the world, as you just said, are being included in work connecting to developing autonomous systems.
0: I'm so glad that you clarified the fact um... That there are so many different perspectives on disability and what counts as disability, and as far as involving um, people who live in perhaps what we might call non-normative bodies in development of autonomous systems, you know, it really depends. It depends on the companies and the folks who are doing research and development and their commitments both to the disability community and also to universal design and. There's some wonderful research being done on this. I'm thinking particularly of the work that Rua Williams is doing at Purdue on disability justice and technological design. And, um, you know, there are companies like Google. I do a little bit of work with Google just as one of their beta testers on wearables. Most often, as far as I know, the ways that disabled folks end up being involved is through data harvesting. And that's something that's both really helpful and really ethically fraught. I mean, on the one hand, I am thrilled, especially in the case of something like hearing aid adjustments. Because again, as I said, um, hearing aids aren't plug and play. You go through a project, uh, sorry, uh, you go through a process of returning to your audiologist over a period of months to make a lot of tweaks, to do some repetitive testing, and make sure that things are really dialed in for your specific hearing needs. Um, it's a really subjective process. I mean, what I call crisp sound may not be at all what you experience as crisp, for instance. And I love that Megan, my wonderful audiologist, can download the settings that I've been using and look and see what's going on. I mean, for instance, this hearing aid, I've gotten in the middle of a pandemic. I'm not really comfortable going in and sitting in a really interior booth and doing the testing. Um, and I figured out after a while that I couldn't really hear my husband and I could not hear my cat purr. And this cat has a very loud purr. I should definitely be able to hear that. So I was able to have her download my settings and um set up a Zoom with her, send her a sound file of Top Go purring, had my husband come and stand in front of the camera and count to 10, and she triangulated all of that. Um, sent me the new settings, which I downloaded and accepted, and it was fixed. It's wonderful. I love that. But um, data requires interpretation, as all of you know. And so um, a company simply downloading data, data, data from all the people who are wearing this hearing aid, um, doing it anonymously, dumping it into a big data pool, and then using that for R&D, on the one hand, gives them some really grounded senses of how we're going about using these hearing aids. But if you're not also asking the wearers what they're doing, then you have a bunch of decontextualized data. And there's also the question of really, under US law, we end up with questions like, is it okay to do this without really meaningful consent? Consent for using one of these devices and, having your data surveilled and harvested is if you're using the thing, then you consent it to it. If you don't consent to it, then great, don't use it. And for a lot of us, especially in the disability community, not using it isn't really an option. I mean it I could elect not to wear hearing aid, but the way that, I mean the context that I work in, the way that my career is basically set up, I would have to make some radical life choices in order not to do that. Um, Should people be able to meaningfully opt out then? Should you have access to your data to even know what that is? Should you be told where it's stored? Is that data gonna be resold? Very often the answer is yes. So what does that mean when you have people who are compulsorily wearing devices who really cannot meaningfully opt out of wearing them? And yet all of this Data that they produce becomes a profit center and also a decontextualized way of involving them in some sense, but also not really involving them in the design of products.
1: Given all the different nuances of what you just brought up, I was thinking specifically about this book I've been reading, which I'm happy to say is available in open access, and it's called Design Justice. Uh, and the subtitle is Community-Led Practices to Build the Worlds We Need. And the author is Sasha Costanza-Chalk. So I was thinking about, you know, all these issues of equity. And if it's the case that when we're thinking of design justice, that disabled people, people with disabilities, ought to be able to have more of a role in how things are determined about the products that affect us. Can, can you talk a little bit about uh, what you think the biggest opportunities are that you perceive for disabled folks, people with disabilities in relation to autonomous systems? thinking about some of what you just brought up.
0: Absolutely. I think one of the things that um, folks, and certainly the media are most excited about are simply autonomous cars, You know, which have been heavily in development for the past few years and are going to become a reality in the coming years because that offers so much opportunity for mobility independence. And I suspect that's going to become even more important in the coming years. And you we know when we reach a post pandemic state of affairs, because right now none of us know what the fallout is going to be. Um, there are a lot of other very exciting things in development, including more advanced wheelchairs, smart prosthetics that offer people more control over their limbs and more immediate control over their limbs. So, skeletons. All of these have really been pushed, uh, you know, in more recent years by veterans returning from the Middle East and the needs that they've had. Also, you know, smarter and smarter medical wearables. Already we have these. These are definitely in play, but there's a huge difference between the smart hearing aid that I had five years ago, which was the Starkey Halo, which at that time was one of the very first ones that interfaced with iPhones. And now the Starkey Livio, which is what I'm wearing now, which actually incorporates true AI and machine learning into a hearing aid um, that's constantly learning about the ways that I'm using it and making adjustments itself. And there's also been fantastic developments in, you know, text-to-voice technologies um, and, Automatic captioning is by no means where it needs to be yet, but it's so much better than it was five or six years ago. And I really expect to see that continue to improve in the coming years.
1: I was thinking about Otter uh, while you were talking, uh, Otter.ai, and and that, that of course, does not replace the talent and expertise of someone who's trained in uh, in professional live captioning. Um, and yet it, it's a, a good supplemental tool to use, um, especially for people who are, might be doing transcription on their own, you know, for
0: personal or professional reasons in, in a private kind of a way. I think you're making a really, really good point there. And I hope that we're able to think, you know, people look at things like auto AI and think, oh, this is cheaper. And this is an equitable solution that also helps us think about um, our budget for accessibility. And I'm hoping, really, that we can find ways to combine machine um, systems, automated systems, and the assistance that's offered, which is really important, because as you said, that's such a good supplement, with the really important skills of someone who has been a live captioner, particularly in research context, and knows the language of medical researchers or philosophers or engineers and is able to provide captioning uh, within research context because this is not a situation where a machine can really replace a human in terms of expertise.
1: Excellent, excellent points. And one of the things also uh, in that regard is I I was uh, trying on these glasses that were helping me with proprioceptive skill And the company that was uh, offering this product, you know, wanted people was at a conference and I went to this, you know, forum where all these people were trying on all this, you know, autonomous technological, you know, uh, human human machine gadgetry in in an interesting structural context. And so they were calling them gadgets and I'm like, this isn't a gadget. This is very expensive. Who's going to be able to get this thing? Um... And so one of the things that you you mentioned just now was access in the, in the you know, economic sense in terms of these, these uh, relationships and collaborations between these systems and the people who use them. And I was thinking about, um, it, there's a question I was going to ask about, what are the biggest challenges for people with disabilities in relation to existing or emerging autonomous systems? And you've already spoken to this a bit by mentioning there are class barriers and socioeconomic barriers and I was hoping that you could uh, comment on, you know, any other things you might wanna talk about in that, in that regard with relation to that, with, with, with respect to that question.
0: Well, let's talk about class barriers because that's one of the biggest challenges for people with disabilities, access these technologies. Let's talk about that and let's also talk about pervasive surveillance. Cause I really do think those are the two largest challenges. Um, emerging autonomous systems are always incredibly expensive hands down. Um, sometimes there is state aid for purchasing them, sometimes not. But for instance, I mean, let's not to just keep going back to smart hearing aids, but they are something that I know very well from living with one every day. The full Livio system, um, which in my case is the primary hearing aids that I wear on my left ear where I have some residual hearing but also another hearing uh, hearing aid that I wear in my right ear, which is profoundly deaf. I have almost no hearing in that ear, but what I do need is some sense of what's going on on that side of my head. And so that hearing aid transmits sound to the other hearing aid for processing. So I don't by any means hear in stereo, but I do get 360 degrees of information which is really important in meeting context, in symposiums, in driving, because God help the person who is my passenger, because I will totally turn around to see what you're saying. Um, But that full setup is $5,000. This is not something that is available to most deaf folks, and it absolutely should be. It's fantastic sound. It integrates with... Um, whatever smartphone. Also, just cause of the smartphone is part of the system. It's just assumed that you will have that. Another primary concern is the way that pervasive surveillance works across autonomous systems, um, not just in things like medical wearables, but also things like disability robots and robot caregivers. I was thinking, um, you know, just if
1: I could ask you a question before the final remark, is that all right with you? That's, that's actually uh, not one we necessarily had in mind in the first place, but I feel like it might be okay. And if not, that's, that, we'll see how it goes. But um, there's this film called Fixed. Have you seen it? The movie
0: Fixed? I have not seen Fixed. It's next up in my queue.
1: How about that? So this is a great film for the listeners and for, again, people accessing the program otherwise, the show otherwise. Uh, Fixed has this debate in it, I won't spoil it for you, don't worry, um, where people with disabilities, disabled people, are talking about their relationships with technological elements in their lives, some of which wouldn't be able to be removed without a complete disruption to their lives. And some, as you talked about earlier, use the word compulsory and and another another level of argument and assertion in the in this uh, movie is that we don't want this technology even if we could afford it because it undermines our identity and there's this you know some some film geeks like me with like I am I guess would and uh, I was also thinking about the word smart and I wonder about the word smart insofar as some folks might Um, have different feelings about the word smart because of its implications in the disability rights movement, especially when we're talking about what are often referred to as intellectual disabilities. And so say something about the kind of rhetoric or the the, the, uh, implication of the term smart and how that might affect disabled people learning about autonomous technologies. (sighs)
0: Because so often in terms of early development and certainly early AI, early computing development was not driven by the notion of disability applications. It's a military development sequence. SMART in this particular instance is very much a military industrial complex term. And then it rolls downhill eventually over the years to Okay, so now we have smart prosthetics, we have smart hearing aids, we have all these things. I think there's very little thought actually to what's become just a common industry term for how we talk about these systems. This is why you should involve the disability community from the get-go, because it's not something you know that researchers who have been told all their lives that they're smart are apt to think about. You know, the different types of smartness the different ways intelligence functions in the world, the different ways intelligence looks in the world, and the ways that lived experience is very much a part of intelligence. So I would be very curious uh, about the alternative terminology that the disability community might come up with actually to talk about intelligent systems and machine learning and smart technologies because, you know, a past experience is any indication really innovative and creative things would come out of that discussion.
1: Thank you so much, Krista. We're grateful to you for your sharing of your time and your valuable insights, your wisdom in talking today about autonomous systems and the impacts they may have on the lives of people with disabilities. Thanks so much and have a good afternoon.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Kristen and Diane, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, Just fascinating, I I could have this go on for hours. Uh, So thank you for being our guest today. And I also wanna thank you, our ADA Live listeners for joining us for this episode. Get access to all ADA Live episodes on our website at adalive.org. Every episode is archived with streamed audio, accessible transcripts and resources. You can listen on the SoundCloud channel to ADA Live. Go to our channel at soundcloud.com forward slash ADA Live. As a reminder, if you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can submit those questions anytime online at adalive.org, or you can contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. And remember, those calls are always free and they're confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center. Our producer is Celestia Orazda, with Beth Miller-Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marcia Schwanke, and me, I'm Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. We'll see you next episode. Please be safe, everybody.